Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? I'm Carrie. And I'm Joe. Please remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just Midwest monsters of the highest grade talking about 80s music. So give us a break. (laughs) (laughs) That's my gremlins impression. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I know gremlins. We have that promo on the attic, and it oh. like it ends with one gremlin being like, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> <laughs> and it always makes me laugh. Oh man! Well, Joe, we've got to welcome some listeners. Well, we got to welcome everyone. How about you shout out our loyal listeners? Yeah, we found some in Fort Collins, Colorado; Clayton, North Carolina; and Prague, Czech Republic. Fun fact: Producer Dave was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. His mom's maiden name is Jones, and the last four of his social is three, nine. His childhood pet was Stinky. (laughs) I just saw another thing, yeah, going around about someone was like, stop answering these these questions. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Gives all your personal information. Hello to all of those people. Hello to everyone else. And you can find us on our Facebook at facebook.com slash HRT80S. Our Twitter is the same at HRT80S. And you Carrie, never you know posted- what we never did? I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> this is your fault. You're in charge. I thought about it midweek and then I was like, you know what? Let's give it another week and let people listen. You know, sometimes people don't listen right away mm-hmm. and that's fine. Listen at your leisure, but I'll make a collage of all six and people can vote on the favorite sweater. Yeah. So we're talking about the Casey sweaters that Joe won in an auction and we need to put pictures of them up so everyone can see them in all their glory. Mm-hmm. I have a couple very quick tidbits, Joe. First, I want to share with the listeners, I was very excited this week to see Pat Benatar announced a tour, and I secured buy tickets for Milwaukee. Awesome. I'm in this place, let me just tell you, where I don't like concerts where you have to sit in a seat. Is that nuts? Oh, I do. I love them. Oh, you do? Wow. Yes. I prefer to just chill and, you know, kind of dance and whatever. Chill sounds good, but if you got to, like, stake your claim two hours before, yeah. then you can't go to the bathroom or to the bar, and you'll have to sneak back up where you were. See, I'm it's thinking that acts like Pat Benatar, that's not going to be a big deal. Anyways, I was kind of wavering back and forth, and I finally was like, come on, Carrie, like, you know, this is probably your last chance to see Pat in concert. So Mm -hmm. I had to seize that opportunity. That's happening not until August 5th, so quite some time away, but I'll have a report on that in the future. I may as well. There is group chat discussion right now talking about should we go? Should we get tickets for her St. Louis visit? Yeah, I'm curious to find out if you end up going. I mean, I think, of course, it would be a great show. But yours is, I think, on a Monday night, which is a little bit different vibe. Next little tidbit. We talked all this week, you and I, about you, I don't think, had ever finished the first season of Russian Doll. And I went back and rewatched the first season of Russian Doll in anticipation mm-hmm. of the second season dropping. Did you start the second season? Not yet. I haven't. Have you? Yeah. Well, spoiler alert for the first 10 minutes. And it's not a spoiler at all, really. I mean, it's a little bit of a spoiler. You know, the first season was Nadia, which is the character was dying over and over. And she had to figure out how to get out of that loop while the second season is basically based on time travel. 
You hate time travel. I do hate time travel. I started watching it this morning. I got through like the first 20 minutes of the first episode. So I have no opinion on the content quite yet. But I will say that Bella Lugosi is dead by Bauhaus soundtracks, one of the introductory scenes. And okay. it was really giving me good vibes. I was like, oh, yeah. Didn't they use When in Rome's The Promise in an episode in season one? They did. Yes. Yeah. Exciting. So I'm hoping that there's a lot more 80s music to be found in the season of Russian Doll. And we'll find out. That's all I got. Any tidbits from you, Joe? No, but for someone who hates time travel, <laughs> we're about to step into the time machine. That is true. We are flashing back. We are doing one of our famous, yes, world famous billboard flashbacks. <laughs> to 1980, where we take a look at a billboard issue from this week back in that year, and just kind of page through and see what we can find about what was happening in the world of music. So Joe, April 26, 1980, right on page one at the bottom, there's an ad for Melissa Manchester's sensational hit single, Fire in the Morning. And we've talked about Melissa Manchester many times over the years, but I really do not know that much about her. So I wanted to take this opportunity to dig in. She was born in the Bronx and attended the Manhattan High School of the Performing Arts before studying songwriting at NYU. She started singing in New York City clubs and also sang commercial jingles with a friend named Barry Manilow. And Barry then introduced her to Bette Midler. In 1971, Manchester and Manilow created the Harlettes to sing backup for Bette, and Melissa was the first member. I did not know that. Did you? Mm -mm. I mean, for as many times as I've heard about Barry Manilow working with her back in the day, it's like no one even wants to mention Melissa Manchester. That's some erasure, and I feel bad for her. I know. She deserves some respect. That's amazing. I had no idea. So she then signed a solo deal and released her first album in 1973. Her self-titled eighth album was released in October of 1979 and was produced by Steve Buckingham. He had produced Alicia Bridges' hit, I Love the Nightlife, but had failed to secure any follow-up work. When he cold-called Clive Davis of Arista, Clive said, if you have a hit song, call us. So Buckingham sent on a demo for Fire in the Morning and got the gig producing for Manchester. Light a fire in the morning and keep it burning strong. This one's got Paul Davis on harmony vocals. Oh, yeah. It was released as the second single from the album, reached number eight on the adult contemporary chart. This week on the Hot 100, it was sitting at 32, which would be its peak. Melissa would only hit the Hot 100 six more times in the decade, but that would include her biggest hit, You Should Hear How She Talks About You. I don't know, Fire in the Morning, if I heard this demo, I don't know that I would think to myself, there we go, we've got a hit. (laughs) 
But not only that, like for you to hear it and not think it, but Clive Davis, I mean, it's all on him, really, right? Yeah, it really weird, especially since if his big claim to fame was this I Love the Nightlife, which is a huge disco song. Disco. You'd think if they were going to work with him that they would want to take her into a different direction. But this is just straight down the middle adult contemporary. It is. I'm reticent to say anything bad about <laughs> Melissa Manchester, Carrie, because <laughs> we have a loyal listener who will go unnamed. We've been read the riot act before for saying some not so great things about Melissa Manchester. So here's the line I'm going to take. You know that Lady Gaga meme, the interviewer about something, and she talks real fast and she's like, talented, show-stopping, brilliant, incredible, spectacular. Anytime we talk about Melissa Manchester, let's just insert that clip. <laughs> But I will say for fire in the morning, light a fire in the morning and make love all day long. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a to-do list. (laughs) Yeah, I will just say I'm willing to keep trying to find Melissa Manchester songs that I enjoy, but this is not it. (laughs) Well, we added mathematics to the, or Charlie added mathematics to the rotation. Have you heard that yet? I don't think I've heard it on the air. It's interesting. I'm right there with you. Going back, though, I had no idea that she was in the harlot, so I will always give her that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Let's flip a few pages to page five. There is a full-page ad from Columbia Records that says, America demands more Al Johnson. Well, we're going to fact-check that. Al Johnson had been a member of the R&B group The Unifics, which was formed at Howard University. In the late 60s, they had two top 40 hits on the pop chart and two top 10 hits on the R&B chart. In the 70s, Johnson wrote songs for acts like Denise Williams before he started a solo career. His second album, Back For More, was released in early 1980. From that album and the single that was being promoted by this Columbia ad was I'm Back For More, a duet with Gene Carn. Gene Carn was an R&B singer signed to the famous Philadelphia International Records label. She had a number of R&B and dance hits in the 70s and 80s. I'm Back For More did not reach the Hot 100, but it did go to 26 on the R&B chart. Al Johnson did not release another album until 1998, but he did continue to work behind the scenes as an arranger and keyboardist throughout the 80s. America said, a return to sender. (laughs) I actually really liked this song. Is this the song you were grooving to? You yes. sent me a little video chat and you had to stop and do a little shimmy shoulder dance break. I did. That was this one? Yes. I couldn't really tell. Oh, okay. I, I could see that. Yeah. I get it. I don't know why. I just really liked it. And I'm surprised it wasn't a bigger hit on the R&B chart. Duets, it seemed like, were always big on the R&B chart. Mm-hmm. I just think this one should have been a bigger hit. A little romantic, also with a little groove to it. Mm -hmm. I was really feeling it. Yeah, I could tell. I've got the video proof (laughs) if anyone wants to see it. I'll send you a screen recording of it. I'm going to put a little asterisk by Al Johnson. Okay. I liked this, and I'm curious to hear other stuff. Well, you only had one album, you know, in the (laughs) 80s, so. 
Let's get to page 14, where we've got another full page ad. This one promoting a live album by Ian Hunter called Welcome to the Club. That's a great name for a live album, I gotta say. This ad includes blurbs from concert reviews, including one from the Los Angeles Times that says, Lashing, sneering, going straight for the throat. Hunter benefited from his keen sense of drama and a deeply ingrained bond with his audience. Okay. Ian Hunter was the lead singer of Mott the Hoople during that band's existence from 1969 to 74. After that, Hunter released a number of solo albums produced by Mick Ronson, the guitarist from David Bowie's backing band The Spiders from Mars. Ronson co-produced Welcome to the Club. The first three sides were recorded live at the Roxy in West Hollywood over seven nights in November of 1979. However, the second single, We Gotta Get Out of Here, was one of three new tracks which were recorded live in a studio in New York City early in January. It's such a small That's Ellen Foley singing backing vocals and performing the extended monologue towards the end. You know her as the female vocalist from Paradise by the Dashboard Light. The song only reached 108 on the Bubbling Under chart. Carrie, that's presumptuous. I know Ellen Foley as the like assistant <laughs> yes. from the Night Court earlier seasons. Yes. Yeah, that's very reductive about Ellen Foley. She also had a solo career. She was the partner of Mick Jones of The Clash and sang backing vocals on The Clash's albums. And yes, she was an actress as well. I don't know what's going on with her monologue in this song. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed this song up until that part, which just seems like it's trying to rip off the whole idea of a monologue from Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Maybe it was her like audition piece for <laughs> Night Court. <laughs> Maybe. She was killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> Harry Stone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's very glam rock, Uh sounds very much like Bowie. I was really into it. I really enjoyed it. I was too. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote down, I know I should know this name. I've seen it so many times over my life, but I had no idea who he was until just now. Yeah. I mean, he sold the shit out of it. No wonder he got Mm -hmm. such a glowing review from the LA Times. Yeah, this ad was good. Whoever put this ad together really, really sold the whole idea of this live album. And then at the bottom says, if you want to know why all these critics are raving, Ian Hunter will be back on tour beginning in June. It's like, all right, sell the album and the tour. (laughs) Good for them. I mean, it's a full page ad. They got their money's worth. Yep. On page 18, it's commentary from Joseph E. Bates, the general manager of Light Lab Corporation an internationally renowned lighting manufacturer, and he wants to set the record straight on Billboard articles that have recently reported on the decline of disco. He claims the disco market had been flooded in the false expectation that people would buy anything with a certain tempo or disco sound, but sales of well-produced music has remained steady. 
He also notes that patronage in disco clubs, where lights and sound combine to produce a sensory experience greater than the sum of its parts. Joseph. Wow. <laughs> you get them. Yeah. So what was number one this week back in 1980 on what was still known as the Disco Top 100? It was Stomp by the Brothers Johnson. George and Louis Johnson were actually brothers that performed with Billy Preston and Quincy Jones in the early 70s. Stomp was their third R&B number one and first and only dance number one. It peaked at number seven on the Hot 100. That's surprising to me. I don't think I've ever heard a countdown where it's that high. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, you have? I don't know that I have, but I don't know. Well, after the brothers went their separate ways in 1982, Louis played bass on Thriller and many other 80s albums. George also did some session work. I mean, what can you say about Stomp? That's a classic. A classic, I love that one. That's another one that got my shoulders moving. So this is one where my friend Peter was like, oh, I found some 45s for you at a record store. And one was Stomp by the Brothers Johnson. And I was like, I think I like this song. And then I put it on and I was like, oh my gosh, a classic. Yeah, yeah. I loved this whole thing, though, from Joseph E. Bates. His tagline is it's at the very end where it says, Joseph Bates is general manager of the West Coast office of Light Lab Corp. And I'm like, why is this guy so invested in disco? And then I'm like, oh, because he's trying to sell lights to discos. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's why he's talking yeah. about how discos are more than music. They're light shows. And I'm like, all right, Joseph, you do it. You get it. Gosh, who did he pay to get this column in, right? I do kind of agree with him, though, that like true disco never really changed. And the good parts of disco, I think, carried on for quite some time. But it was sort of the whole idea of let's pump out as much bad disco music as we can that really killed the whole genre. Man, look at this ad for blank tapes. What a great price. (laughs) Let's flip to page 66 and see what Billboard's top album picks for the week. First, it's the self-titled album from country-influenced rockers Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Originally called Family Tree, they had to change names after finding out that one was already taken, so one of the members came up with the name Cosmic Corncob and his amazing Ozark Mountain Daredevils. I mean, please just get a grip. That's insane. Presumably after they all sobered up, they decided to shorten the name to just the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, which is still wild. It's not a good band name. It's too long. I'm not going to go into a record store and be like, can I get that Ozark Mountain Daredevils record? (laughs) (laughs) They had one big hit in the 70s. Jackie Blue went to number three in 1975. They lost their record deal in 1979 when the head of their record label saw them speed through a performance on the variety show The Midnight Special because they were drunk. Ay ay ay. They signed with a new label. Their 1980 album was their first for Columbia. 
Billboard notes the album is a soaring, rocking effort, but unlike their previous records, there's no real country influence and all the songs fit into a pop or rock format. Among the best cuts listed, according to Billboard, was Take You Tonight, which was released as a single. It would debut on the Hot 100 on May 24th, but only reached number 67. Take you tonight, Joe. Did it take you? Carrie, you know I like country crossovers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This ain't it. And they're from my home state, but this is not my cup of moonshine. <laughs> Whatever a band is called, like country rock or alt country, sometimes it's called nowadays, or country influenced. I always feel like, oh, because I think those two genres, you know, mixed together are are often very good. And so I was excited to learn more about this band. But yeah, this song didn't like make me want to listen to more of their music. I'm surprised you didn't add a little tidbit that I had shared with you about this band a few months ago. I don't remember, my friend. You don't? Well, it happened on Christmas Eve night, maybe. I was visiting the in-laws and watching Wheel of Fortune, and one of the contestants was Michael Soup Granda, who mentioned he was in a band called the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. That's when I looked him up and realized they're from where my dad lives, right? Oh, my God. And he was so entertaining. I believe he won. I was like, I love this guy. I think he's written a book about the band's history and their issues. And I wish I liked the music. Oh, wow. You're crazy. That's crazy. No, I am crazy. (laughs) I had forgotten about that. But now that you're saying that I do remember you telling me about that. Wow. So yeah, check out Michael Soup Granda on (laughs) Wheel of Fortune. Also covered in top album picks is the debut album by The Cramps. Formed in Sacramento by Eric Perkheiser, a.k.a. Lux Interior, and Christy Wallace, a.k.a. Poison Ivy, who would later marry. The band came to fame after they moved to New York and became staples on the punk scene, often playing at CBGB's. They coined the phrase Psychobilly to describe the fusion of rockabilly music with horror elements. Signed to IRS Records by Miles Copeland, their debut album was titled Songs the Lord Taught Us. They're funny. (laughs) Billboard describes it as vampire rockabilly, which works, and said, The music is basic, pounding, slashing, but still controlled. Among the best cuts was a track called I Was a Teenage Werewolf. After their second album, they got into a dispute with IRS about royalties and left the label after a court case. They only hit the U.S. charts once in 1989 when Bikini Girls with Machine Guns hit number 10 on the modern rock chart. 
Cramps, it's funny because they are definitely a band that I knew about even way back when. Like, I remembered hearing about them in the late 80s, kind of one of those bands that you would see on 120 Minutes and just hear that name or something as like, this is the standard of alternative music or whatever it was. But I honestly don't know that I've ever heard anything by them. I yeah, And I've heard them referenced and I've heard the song title referenced, you know, my yeah. whole life. Glad we got to hear it finally. Yeah. It didn't like blow me away, but it did make me want to listen to more of them and like think to myself, gosh, I've never listened to the cramps and I can't believe that that's a hole in my in my knowledge. And now you can say you have. Yeah. Dave thought it sounded like an Orville Peck song. Yeah, I can definitely hear that. And then I said he should cover it if he weren't so hairless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, but here's some other um, song names from this album. Garbage Man, <laughs> Zombie mm-hmm. Dance, Strict Nine, mm. I'm Cramped. Um, so they're wild. Yeah. I think I'm going to spin this whole album. And like I said, it did make me want to listen to more of their stuff. Right, right. That's it for the Billboard flashback for this week, Joe. I was glad that we got to find some good things out of 1980. I'm usually very hateful towards that year of music. Uh But it is crazy to think. I mean, we went from Melissa Manchester and straight adult contemporary to the cramps. The cramps, you know? right. So mm-hmm. there was always something. You just had to look. You just had to look off the charts, you know? It's like Alan Hunter always says, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah, very true. Well, we've got one more segment this week, and it's coming around again. Coming around again. This is the segment where we talk about songs that were released or recorded more than once. This week, it's Nowhere Girl by B-Movie. B-Movie formed in Mansfield, England in the late 70s. They signed a management deal with Stevo, not Stevo of Jackass. Jackass. <laughs> Steve-O, a London DJ that had pivoted to music management, and he also managed Soft Cell at this time. Nowhere Girl was first released in 1980 as part of an EP, and that version had the distinctive synth line, but was otherwise mostly sparse and had a darker sound. Steve Hovington's vocals were almost monotone. While the single didn't chart, the band did have a successful couple years touring with Duran Duran and being featured on a Peel session on the BBC. In 1982, trying to capitalize more on this success, the band released the original version of Nowhere Girl again. This time it did reach the charts, but only made it to number 67 in the UK. From 1980 to 1985, The band only released singles or EPs, but never a proper album. They finally did that in 1985. And guess what? They re-recorded a new version of Nowhere Girl to include on it. Wow. Wow. 
This version sounds much more full and poppy, but the album flopped and the band broke up shortly after. They got back together in 2013 and released a couple more studio albums. Carrie, you're never going to believe this. (laughs) Their 2013 album includes another re-recorded version of Nowhere Girl, but if you want to hear that clip, you go find it on your own, sis. (laughs) We didn't bother. We have a limit of, you know, two. Um, So, Joe, did you know the song Nowhere Girl? I did. I've talked about it on The Attic once, I believe. The only thing I knew about them was that they'd released this song, but their album wouldn't come out until 1985, and then they broke up. I discovered this song on some kind of compilation at some point. It's definitely the the later version that I knew of. And so when I found out that they had released this a couple times, and that the original version was different, I was like, oh, let's listen to this. Let's see how it sounds. And I'm like, ugh. (laughs) Mm. The second version is definitely better. They're just so different. I couldn't even believe it was the same song at first, right? It is crazy, though. It is like they're basically like microcosms of the time, like 1980. Like, it can totally see how they put out this sparse, like, it almost sounds like gothy. Joy Division is what I thought of. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, in 1985, of course, it sounds like Duran Duran mm-hmm. and, you know, all the new romantics and stuff. I know you're not on Twitter, but it reminded me of a tweet that went viral this month where someone wrote, Let me clear this up once and for all. Post-punk is when a guy is sad in a deep voice. (laughs) Pop-punk is when a guy is sad in a high voice. Indie rock is when a guy is sad in a medium voice. Post-rock is when a guy is too sad to sing at all. (laughs) I love that. That actually kind of makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Nowhere Girl by B-Movie, the 1985 version. That one gets a thumbs up, right? Yeah, Yeah. definitely Mm -hmm. a good one to put on your playlist. Yeah. That's it for this week, Joe. Oh, I know. Quick and easy this week. Um, next week, we're going to have a birthday bash where we are going to use the birthdays of some of the people that are celebrating birthdays from next week to talk about their music. We got a lot of April or May birthdays. Yeah, there's some wow. there's some good ones in there. I'll get my party hat ready. Yeah, bake a cake. Anything else? The only thing I want to add is it's record store day, and I'm getting ready to head out and see if I can find Sheena Easton, the definitive 12-inch singles compilation on neon pink vinyl. And the cover is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And if I don't get it, I'm going to cry. I'm going to Google that cover right now. Oh, that is cute. I love that. Ooh, I'm looking at the list right now. Yeah, this looks like a good one. I hope that you can uh, grab that. Oh, I just now realized it. Oh, it does have So Far So Good. Yay. Yay. Well, good luck to you, Joe. Gracias. Here's a little mini tidbit. I went to the record store yesterday and picked up some new used records. And we'll have to do another obscure soundtrack song segment coming up soon because the soundtrack bin was where it was at yesterday. It was popping, yeah. I got Teachers, I got... uh, Burglar. Burglar, (laughs) yes, which I bought only because there's a Belinda Carlisle song on there. 
What was the other one I got? Vision Quest. Mm -hmm. And then the best one was, of course, Some Kind of Wonderful, which is one of my favorite soundtracks. And I literally gasped. I was going to say, I would love to be a fly on the wall there. Isn't that a great (laughs) feeling when you see something so shocking and amazing at the record store that you're like, I know when I'm by myself, I turn and look like I want to tell somebody I want to tell a stranger. (laughs) Yes. It was great. I was super excited. Great. Enjoy. Thank you. People, thank you for listening. Hope you had a good time and we'll be back soon. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to others. Just be kind. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.